This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rashes, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice with over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC that's p-e-d-s-d-o-c Believe it or not, your kid grows really fast when they're younger, like a baby and a toddler, and then it slows way down, and then it picks back up again. There's another bump around puberty, and that bump is going to depend on the child and when puberty hits, and that can be based on gender, family history, and more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in every week, all of your reviews and just all of your love for the podcast. This is how the podcast continues to grow. And I'm so excited I get to connect with parents from the PDT community, that I get to give you some solo parenting mindset guidance every month, and that I get to invite the most amazing guests on this podcast, including today's guest, who I actually know professionally because we practice in the same area. It is Sarah Hart Unger, who is a PDT pediatric endocrinologist in Florida with me, and I have referred my patients to her, and we are talking today about children's height. I wish my kid was a little bit taller. All about your questions and comments and concerns about if your child is not meeting height, trajectory, everything you'd want to know, and I cannot wait to talk to Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's so fun to have a conversation with you outside of work. Yes. And I am so excited about this topic because we get so many questions in our general pediatrics offices. And I'm sure a lot of the parents listening are concerned, maybe even in that early pediatric years. But of course, when that child is going through puberty, is my child growing okay? And, you know, I'm so excited we're having this conversation because I feel like we often focus on weight, which is important, but people also should be focusing on height. And I am really, really big on monitoring height, making sure that we're not over evaluating, but also making sure that we're not under evaluating if a child is not meeting certain height trajectory. And we'll talk all about that. So thank you for joining us and tell us again what you do as a pediatric endocrinologist. Yeah, so I work at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida, which is part of where Dr. Mona, <laughs> Dr. Mona's yeah, yes. uh, referral population would go. And I've been there for about 10 years. And I take care of children with all kinds of endocrine disorders, from growth issues to thyroid to diabetes and many more. Love it. And again, we're focusing on height today because I haven't had someone come on the podcast to talk about this yet. So this is going to be great. So talking about growth, like I said, we often focus on weight percentiles, right? I think that's what parents normally expect at those early visits, right? We're talking about the baby growing in weight and all of that, but length is important. And also as a child gets older, we're measuring height because they're standing. Um, so that's kind of how we use the terminology. But what do we want to see in height trajectory? I guess throughout the ages, if you want to kind yeah. of sum it all up, because of course we were expecting to see different things based on a toddler versus a school age kid versus someone who's gone through puberty. 
100%. There are different expected growth rates based on your age. And there's a really interesting chart, not to get too into the weeds, that graphs growth velocity, like how fast mm-hmm. you expect a child to go based on age. And it's really, really interesting. Believe it or not, your kid grows really fast when they're younger, like a baby and a toddler, and then it slows way down and then it picks back up again. There's another bump around puberty. And that bump is going to depend on the child and when puberty hits. And that can be based on gender, family history, and more. But one cool rule of thumb that I remember learning in fellowship, this goes back to Duke's chair of endocrinology, Dr. Michael Freemark, taught me that babies grow about 20 inches in their first year, meaning that counts the in utero part, right? So Mm -hmm. when they come out and they've been like gestating for 40 weeks or so, maybe less in some cases, of course, but they come out around 20 inches. So they've grown, oh my gosh, like 20 inches a year. Like think about that, right? And then in the next year of life, they grow approximately 10 inches and then it's five and And then every year after that is about two inches a year until puberty. And then you hit your growth spurt. So really like wrapping your mind around that babies and toddlers grow really, really, really fast. Like they should. You know, in pediatrics, we think about vital signs, right? We think about how rapid is the heart rate and how is the kid breathing, but height and weight are really, really important vital signs to look at as well, although they have to be taken into context to generally assess how a child's health is going. Love it. And like I said, we both are so important and we tend to only focus when I say we pediatricians are focusing on both, but parents usually listen to that weight, especially because they're, that's what they're used to for newborns, right? Like, oh, your baby's gaining weight, you know, breastfeeding, formula feeding, all of that. But like you said, both are really important. And I love this. So 20 inches goes down to 10 inches a year, five inches a year, two inches a year. To clarify for people listening, the 20 inches a year is in that first year. So up until one, right? Yes. 20 inches a year. I mean, that's kind of an estimate. It's probably not exactly. It's probably slightly more than that, really, because if you're starting from zero and then you're pregnant for nine months and your baby is 20 inches at birth, there are probably a couple more inches by the time they are two months old. And so, yeah, just think about that growth rate. It's, It's pretty astounding. Yeah. And so when we are looking at all this, when should a parent evaluate their child for height if it's not meeting that certain trajectory or other besides those, you know, the ballpark numbers that you gave, are there other things that, you know, a parent should be talking with their pediatrician about in terms of height trajectory and growth? Yes. So that is where percentiles become Mm -hmm. really, really important. There's nothing inherently better about a child growing along the 10th percentile Mm -hmm. versus a child growing along the 90th percentile. And I want to emphasize that as that's something we'll talk about later in the episode as well. But it is concerning if a child initially is at the 90th percentile, let's say for the first year of life, and then all of a sudden is dropping down, crossing multiple percentile lines, crossing a percentile line um, between visits isn't necessarily something to get totally freaked out about. In fact, sometimes kids grow more related to their nutrition in the first year of life, and Mm -hmm. then they kind of follow more of a genetic trajectory. So if parents are pretty small, but you've got like these big, chunky, big eater babies, they might be expected to be a little bit bigger as babies and then kind of fall in line into their familial growth curve. And for that to happen, you're going to see some gradual dropping in percentiles, but it shouldn't be multiple percentiles being crossed over between visits. Like, between that six month checkup and like that nine month checkup or whenever the next one is, you would get alarmed if you saw the baby go from 70th to 30th. However, there's nothing alarming at all for a baby that's on the 25th staying on the 25th. So it's all relative. It's that big drop from percentile. 
Yes, a big drop in percentile. And conversely, a big Mm -hmm. increase in percentile Mm, can actually be concerning as well, depending on the age. Like if we're talking about a school age population in a child that hasn't not really the age where you'd expect them to be hitting puberty yet, a really big increase in height percentile could mean that they're experiencing signs of early puberty or that something else is going on more rare, like a thyroid condition could present with that, for example. I love it. And we're going to go over the workup and all of that and things that we're kind of looking for from a medical standpoint when height is not being met in terms of the trajectory that we're looking for. What about like a lower percentile child? So I know you said that we're okay if a child is like on the 10th and tracking there, but what about if a child is under the third or fifth percentile, but they're, you know, happy, developing great, overall things are good. Do we get concerned of lower percentile children, even if they're trending okay? I think we definitely have to take things into context. And that Mm -hmm. means looking at a number of things. First of all, what's the kid's health background like? Is this a baby with a congenital heart defect where we kind of understand why they might have started out smaller and are growing more slowly? In that case, following the third might be awesome for that child. Uh Also looking at the parents, you know, is mom five feet and dad five, five? In that case, I wouldn't expect their kid to be hitting the 50th percentile. That would be weird. That kid might be expected to grow at the fifth or even third percentile. So if there's a genetic component that makes sense, or maybe you have, you know, five kids and all of them have been late bloomers and they've been kind of trailing the bottom of the growth chart, then I wouldn't worry. However, I would say even if they're growing at a normal rate, if it just doesn't seem to make much sense, then I think some evaluation does need to happen. And I have seen in my practice, I can think of one patient in particular that I followed for a few years. Mom was very tall, like 5'11", and dad Mm -hmm. I think was like 6'2", and this little boy was kind of tracking basically like on the growth chart, but barely keeping up with the fifth. And at some point I was just like, you know, Mm -hmm. let's just do a test to look for this child's growth hormone production. And that child did turn out to be growth hormone deficient. And then as we'll talk about later, received some treatment. So in that particular case, it wasn't just late bloomer, although that can be it too, especially if there's a family history of one of the parents going through late puberty or having a late growth spurt. But if it just doesn't fit with the picture that you'd expect, and especially look at the parents and any other family members, then I think it warrants at least some investigation either by your general pediatrician or referral to a specialist like an endocrinologist. Love it. And I know we'll get into like when that referral should take place, but what is done, I guess, maybe at the pediatrician's office. I know it depends on maybe people who are listening, depending on your pediatrician's capability or, you know, referral process. What is that workup that's done then if we see that, okay, there's a concern here in terms of any imaging labs, where would we kind of start with the evaluation? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say as a specialist, I'm totally fine either way. If the pediatrician just feels like, you know what, I'm concerned enough. I just want to send this child to be seen and I'll let them order what they want to order. That's completely fine with me. All I really need is an accurate growth chart. That's the most important thing. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs 
and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals, chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. And then other pediatricians might be more interested in doing part of the workup to kind of decide whether the child needs to be referred. And if you're in an area like ours, where unfortunately there's kind of like a long waiting list for appointments sometimes, it can be useful for the pediatrician to do the workup to make sure there's nothing glaring that would make them want to call the office and get the child in a little bit earlier. So what that workup often looks like is an x-ray of the hand. Parents call it all kinds of different things. Parents will call it a bone scan or a bone density, but that's not what it is. It's Mm -hmm. actually called a bone age. And what we're looking at in that x-ray is not how big is the hand or like, do the bones look weird? But we're looking at the growth plates. What growth plates are, are little basically lines of cartilage because baby's hands are not made of mostly bone. The bones in their hands are like tiny and then the edges of it are all cartilage. So they show up as clear on an x-ray. And so you can basically look at the image of a hand and see how far along that child is in their growth. And it's given an age. Now, I also want to do a little bit of damage control here because parents will come and freaked out like, oh my gosh, they're seven and their bone age is five. Like something's mm-hmm. terribly wrong. But that's not the right way to interpret things because you have to think that bone ages is just an average. Yeah. The way the standards were determined was like a 1930s farm population and they took a million x-rays of a bunch of kids and they said, okay, on average, kids who have lived for seven years have hands that have looked like this. And then so your bone age would get read as seven. But just because your kid isn't seven and they're reading it as looks like seven doesn't necessarily mean something's off. It's just kind of one tool in the toolbox to understand where your child's growth is. For example, they look like a late bloomer. We expect them to have a delayed bone age. That doesn't mean something's wrong. It can just mean that they're likely to grow late, go through puberty late, et cetera. A severely delayed bone age and a poor growth rate can point to issues like hypothyroidism, celiac disease, or growth hormone deficiency. I love it. And we'll get into more of the labs that are done, but let's talk about that delayed bone age. So just say we have a child who, again, is maybe not meeting that 
trajectory that we would expect, or maybe they dropped a little bit on percentiles. And so you do a bone age and it shows that their chronological age, so that the age of the child is eight, but that their bone age is actually a five, which means that they are still going to grow. So that's how we kind of know that they're still going to grow. Their growth plates are not closing. We'd be more concerned if an eight-year-old had a bone age of 12, correct? Well, yes. Unless that eight-year-old is very, very tall. Tall, tall um, correct. correct. <laughs> yes. So yeah, we do bone age is looking at both ends of the spectrum. And I guess I would just say that like, let an endocrinologist or your pediatrician like interpret whether yes. to be concerned about the bone age. Because I think this is a fairly nuanced conversation and there's so many variables there. But the takeaway for me is it's a really useful tool to predict future height. And that just because the number you get isn't exactly the same as your child's age isn't a reason to panic. But ask whoever ordered the bone age to explain what it means in terms of growth and whether to be concerned. And also what the future workup would be. Like just say they do a bone age and things seem okay. Let's say like, okay, there's a late bloomer kind of situation. The child's still going to grow. Maybe they did some labs and it was normal. Have the conversation with the ordering provider, whether that is the pediatrician or the endocrinologist on when we need to follow up again in terms of the height or, you know, is it going to be a few months, six months, one year, correct? Yes. So, and bone ages are moving targets. I like to tell patients that too. Sometimes I'll have someone come in and they had a bone age done on them two years ago. And they're like, well, why do I need that? I had that. I'm like, well, (laughs) that can change with time. And so it's one kind of like piece of the puzzle we use to put things together. But just because it looks great one time doesn't mean we'll never need to do it again. And usually they will tell you, okay, we'll need to repeat this in six months or a year, look at height, etc. Now, a condition where a bone age might be reassuring and help you like not have to do further workup would be in a child perhaps that is kind of on the late side for puberty. So we mm-hmm. often get boys who are like 12 who have no signs of puberty on exam and maybe they have a family history of later puberty and it looks like they're falling percentiles on the growth chart. And the reason it looks like that is because a lot of their peers are starting to have their pubertal growth spurt. Mm-hmm. So yeah. on average, the chart goes up. And so if they're still growing at a normal pre-puberty rate, their position on the chart is going to go down. And in that case, if they have no puberty on exam and you get a bone age and it's 10, that can be very, very very reassuring because it's like, okay, this picture fits beautifully with the fact that you're just following your family's footsteps and we have your whole growth spurt ahead of you. So your position on the chart now doesn't necessarily reflect where you're going to land as an adult. Just because you've dropped to the 10th percentile doesn't mean you're going to be a 10th percentile adult. Yeah. And like you said, it's such a nuanced discussion looking at the big picture of an exam, right? Like you said, like you need to know what age is the child? What is their pubertal status? Like if we're talking about like, you know, certain developmental characteristics there, because that does play a role in the big picture of evaluating, hey, do I need to be concerned more? Do I need to evaluate further and all of that? Yes, exactly. And family history can be really, really helpful too. I worry a lot less about delayed puberty when I hear the parents say, oh yes, I had my growth spurt in 12th grade. And the mom says, I had my period at age 16. And then Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, well, you came into this honestly and that's okay. (laughs) Love it. And so you mentioned already some of the medical stuff. You mentioned celiac thyroid. What labs would be done in a workup of any height concern? Yeah. So the general kind of screening panel that I typically order or tell the community pediatricians to order is a complete blood count just to kind of look for anything like uh, iron deficiency or just sort of something unexpected. A BMP, at least to look at kidney function, Mm -hmm. thyroid function tests. So usually a TSH and free T4, a celiac panel. 
something called a SED rate, which just looks for generalized inflammation. That might be helpful to figure out if somebody had like a rheumatologic disease or inflammatory bowel disease. And then two growth factors called IGF-1 and IGF-BP3. These are both made in the liver in response to the growth hormone that's produced from your body in the pituitary. Now, parents often say, well, why, if you're worried about growth hormone problem, why didn't you just measure growth hormone? And the reason is because growth hormone is released in kind of a secretory pattern throughout the day, Mm -hmm. meaning some minutes of the day, it's going to be really high and many other minutes, it's going to be zero. And so you can't count on any one blood draw capturing really the essence of what's going on with a child's growth hormone status. So these growth factors are released kind of in proportion to how much growth hormones is being released. So they're more stable surrogate factors that we can look at to kind of gauge if that is a diagnosis in question. Very good. And I love having this conversation so that people know why it's important that we're monitoring these things, right? Like we're not talking about weight, but if a child's weight is going out of their trajectory, right? Like maybe they were on the 20th percentile. Now they're on the 90th or we're talking about height here. Same thing, jumping, jumping like across the multiple percentiles. It is so important that we know and are monitoring these things. And I go back to this because that's why well visits are so important. Like I have some families who are like, oh, you know, things are well and going like I have no questions. So why do I need to bring my child in for checkups? And I'm like, because we have the graph, like we see everything to look at that big picture, to know that everything's going okay. Because I have had it where sometimes children will come in and they missed three well visits, whatever reason, right? Like maybe family was moving around or whatever. And then we miss maybe like a prime opportunity, maybe that pubertal age where we could have maybe intervened, which we'll talk about things like growth hormone, because that kind of stuff like may need to be done earlier than later, right? Like if a family decides to do something like growth hormone, if their child is not meeting certain height trajectory that we want, that needs to be done before their growth plates close, correct? Yes. I just want to be very careful because you said if the parents want to do growth hormone and that's not exactly the wording I would use. If a child needs growth hormone or or qualifies for growth hormone, and I can definitely go into detail of what conditions would warrant that, then yes, you would need to treat prior to growth plates closing. And just as important, although sometimes I feel like parents forget, we don't want to miss a condition that could affect the child's health in other ways, such as, again, like, celiac, Mm -hmm. worst case of brain tumor, hypothyroidism. Like when I say growth is a vital sign, yes, one thing that can cause poor growth is growth hormone deficiency and growth hormone can be a helpful band-aid, but not every kid who's growing slow, that's not always the reason. We need to look for other underlying reasons why that might be the case. Well, yes, thank you for that clarification. But I've had some situations where a family, even if they qualify for like seeing an endocrinologist and working on their height, they don't want to see one because they're like, hey, I'm fine. Like they refuse. So that's why I'm saying like a family wants to pursue that is that, yes, you're right that there are guidelines to growth hormone and all that, but some people refuse care. And so just want to, yeah, I'm just- I, I wish I wanna, they yeah. wouldn't though, because again, like we're not necessarily going to recommend treatment, right. but you want to do the workup to make sure there's no underlying health issue. Although I, I get it. If parents are both short and the child is right. just very short and is growing appropriately, then that's another story. And growth hormone- can be used in non-growth hormone deficient individuals if they meet certain criteria. So I think that's more what you're referring to, like a child with what we call idiopathic short stature that's kind of growing at a normal rate, but a very low percentile. And I guess I will just clarify what that is. So technically, ISS is approved for children beneath the negative 2.25 standard deviations for height, which equates to about the first percentile and a predicted adult height for girls below 4'11 and for Mm -hmm. men below about 5'4". 
Becoming a new mom does not come with a manual, but I'm trying to get as close to it as possible. Are you expecting a baby or know somebody who is? Make sure to grab my first year course, The New Mom Survival Guide. The on-demand course contains modules covering parenting in the first year, newborn feeding like breast and formula feeding, newborn sleep and infant sleep, introduction of solids, safety, baby care how-tos, developmental milestones, teething, and so much more. With videos and printables, you will feel supported through the first year. The course also has a roadmap that takes you through what to expect visit by visit so you can feel more confident and calm in the choices that you make and the stages that you'll go through during your baby's first year. By purchasing, you also get access to our Facebook community to troubleshoot issues or concerns. It also makes a great gift that can support a new mom through her motherhood journey. Check out the New Mom Survival Guide by visiting pedsdoctalk.com and searching our popular courses. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. I think it's sometimes important to actually share where those cutoffs are because in some communities, I think people get the idea that growth hormones should be given to every kid who's like below average or something like that. Again, it can be used in kids who are not deficient, but they really should be quite small. Love it. And yeah, if we can elaborate more on the current guidelines on when growth hormone is FDA authorized or approved. Yeah. So that was the idiopathic short stature guideline or indication. Other indications include growth hormone deficiency. So this would be tested for in the situation where the child is not growing at a normal rate and then has low growth factors. We can do something called a growth hormone stimulation test to formally figure out if the child does have true growth hormone deficiency. And if they do, then that would qualify them for treatment. In addition, there's other conditions such as Noonan syndrome, Turner Mm -hmm. syndrome. Those are both genetic syndromes where a growth hormone is approved for treatment. And then finally, one that I think people kind of forget about is that children who are born small for gestational age, so below the 10th percentile for their um, gestational age, if they don't catch up to the 10th percentile by age two, then they would qualify for treatment or they're approved on the FDA label for treatment with growth hormone as well. I love this. And like Dr. Sarah said, if you are concerned about your child's height, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be this big intervention that needs to get done. But at the very least, we need to monitor the height or at the very least, we need to do imaging, lab work. But that's all discussed in a clinician patient relationship discussing height, trajectory, what's going on, familial height, which we talked about already asking the parents height and, you know, when they went through puberty and all of that. So it is so important. It is a big conversation to be had with 
a lot of nuance, like we've already discussed. So I love this conversation. And obviously, just to be completely clear, if you're going into growth hormone, you're by then probably seeing an endocrinologist. I know there's some doctors maybe in rural settings that prescribe it as a general pediatrician, but typically pediatric endocrinologist is the one managing growth hormone and all of that in the United States is from you know yes. my experience as well. Yes. And there's actually even guidelines put out by the Peds Endo Society. Well, maybe they're biased, <laughs> but they do suggest that growth hormone management should be done by a pediatric endocrinologist. So that would be the specialty you would go to for that. Yeah. And you already mentioned, you know, obviously when that we would evaluate things like that, but you also briefly alluded to when a family would see an endocrinologist, but to kind of reiterate that. So if a family is concerned, when should they see their pediatrician? When is it time in your opinion to say, Hey, pediatrician, we should take a look now. (laughs) Yeah. So if the child's percentiles continue to drop and you feel like that doesn't make sense, or if you notice your kid is routinely the smallest child among their peers and it just doesn't make sense for your family, I think it's worth it to go see a pediatric endocrinologist, even if it's just for reassurance. Because one thing that we're a little bit more equipped to do than general pediatricians is do a predicted adult height, looking at bone age and the growth rate and the child. And so sometimes that can be really helpful for families. Maybe the pediatrician has said, I think you're fine. I think you're fine. And maybe they are fine, but we actually have an algorithm that we use pretty commonly where we look at the bone age and the child's height and we can actually say point blank to the family, okay, your kid might be at the fifth percentile right now, but she actually has a predicted height of around 5'4". And for your family's genetics, I would expect 5'3 to 5'7". So, you know, this is normal. And then the parents are often really, really relieved to get like a more specific prediction as well as just like a more thorough, just to make sure that like nothing's being missed. So we see that all the time. We expect to see it and we don't mind it at all. So if you're just worried, visit after visit with your PCP, just don't worry. We have a lot of self-referred parents and we are happy to do an initial evaluation. Yes. Have the conversations, advocate for your child. And like Dr. Sarah said, if anything, you're just getting reassurance if it's not anything that needs to be done. But I do think this is a very important conversation. Height monitoring, weight monitoring is all part of, like you said, vital signs and can really give us insight into if this is something that needs intervention. Like you said, I want to reiterate again, going back into, is there something medical that needs to be evaluated that we've missed? I have caught some celiac disease from lack of growth. And so I think it's a very important conversation. And that's something we caught as general pediatricians that we didn't actually need to send to an endocrinologist. We were actually just sent to GI, confirm the celiac disease and manage that. And then we saw growth come back. So it's really a fascinating thing. And it's so important, like we've talked about already, to have that sort of discussion and the big picture analysis of what's going on when we approach height. Yes. Yeah. And seriously, if it just bothers you visit after visit, I say just book that specialist appointment. And I think that's true for anything. Yes. People understand if you just want another opinion, especially if you're very honest about not coming in seeking some answer that you've decided already, but you're right. open to actually hearing what the specialist has to say. We absolutely welcome that. Well, yeah, I mean, I know you deal with this and I've dealt with it too, like parents who are adamant that their child is taller, even if they're doing fine, yes. right? Like meaning, be honest, like I have children who are trending beautifully. They're on the 30th percentile, meaning they're meeting their percentiles. The family is not like tall basketball players. Like it all makes sense. But then the parent really wants the child to be taller for whatever reason, societal expectation, culture. I see it a lot. And I'm sure you do as well. Parents coming in saying, I want growth hormone or I want my child to be taller. And you're like, well, this is all on track, right? 
Right. I mean, we're very clear about like that little speech I did about what yes. the indications what the are. Yes, I correct. give that one a lot. And I always tell parents, look, I'm happy to look for a reason that your child needs treatment. But if I can't find one, then, yes. you know, it's not to your child's benefit to be given a medicine for years that is most likely safe, but which we don't have long, long, long term, large population data on, especially for kids. You know, all the studies are done on kids that qualify for treatment. So it's not necessarily fair to extrapolate a child who doesn't qualify and assume that it's safe for them as well. So you know, I don't know the answer to this because I don't have a patient on growth hormone currently in my practice, surprisingly, but how often are they taking the injections? Oh, that's hormone? a great question. So it's every night. It's a yeah. tiny needle, like the size of an insulin needle. And most of them have really fancy, nice pen devices. Nice. And there is one weekly growth hormone that was just FDA approved. It is not covered by every insurance plan, but I do have a couple patients on that as well. It's a bigger needle. So my patients tell me that that one hurts more mm. with each shot, but then you're only giving shots once a week. But that's a very new one. It's called Skytrofa, and that just came out. Most of the conventional growth hormones are nightly doses. Well, this is another reason I love having specialists on my podcast because you all are up to date on the new meds, right? Like you just taught me something because I didn't know that there was a new <laughs> weekly med because unless I have a patient, general pediatricians kind of know when to be concerned. And then we utilize the resources of our specialists if we need that more personalized care of something like this. So I love it. I just learned something new and I appreciate that. This was an amazing conversation. I know you're going to come on again because I have a lot of other endocrine topics to discuss. Yay. But what would be your final message again for everyone listening today regarding this topic or anything in general? <laughs> yeah, well, about growth, I'd say if you're worried, definitely seek out that opinion. And that tall isn't necessarily better than small, yes. especially when it's within a normal range. So be careful about assigning value judgment to yeah. height. If your child's growing normally is going to reach a reasonable height then you should love them for whatever they're worth. And this is coming from a short female married to a tall husband who already knows that I'm sure my son will be shorter than dad, but yeah. that's okay. <laughs> wow, what a great final message because like going back to parental stress about height, like the genetics are just not there. Like it's okay, that's who we are. And it's sad. I mean, even for more so males than females, there's a gender yes. kind of expectation of like, okay, well, males, you know, they need to be this height. And I see that often. And it's a sad reality. And I love that final message because it's an important one to know for all things related to our kids, not just height. We get these children and they are who they are. And we really have to kind of recognize that accepting them for what they are and what they bring to the table. And that includes how they look and their height and their weight and knowing when to be concerned is so important, which I know we talked about in detail on this episode. Oh my gosh. I love that. And where can everyone find you? Because I know that you also have your own podcasts that have nothing to do with endocrine, <laughs> but tell us more where people can stay connected, not only about endocrine stuff, but just about everything that you put out into the world, because I would love to hear more about that too. Yeah. So if you happen to be in South Florida, you can see me as a patient. I am at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital mm -hmm. in the group there. I'd love to have any of you come. But then I'm actually part time currently and I have a two podcasts, actually, one called love Best it. Laid Plans about all things planning and planning adjacent. And then another one I do with a time management expert called Best of Both Worlds about making work and life fit together. And I've been blogging for 18 years. Yes, 18 years. At love it. TheShoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U-B-O-X.com. So you can find me at any of those places. Well, we will attach everything you just mentioned to our show notes. And again, I want to thank you for joining us today. This was such an awesome conversation and I cannot wait to have you on again for another episode. 
Awesome. I can't wait. We can talk puberty, periods, anything you want. (laughs) Yes. And for everyone listening today, make sure if you love this episode to leave a review. Thank Dr. Sarah for her time and all the valuable information. And I cannot wait to talk to another guest next week. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. As always, please leave a review share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media. Make sure to follow me at Pete's Doc Talk on Instagram and subscribe to my YouTube channel, Pete's Doc Talk TV. We'll talk to you soon. Are you tired of searching Google and ending up in a rabbit hole at 2 a.m. thinking that you're ruining your kid? Stop and visit pedsdoctalk.com. My website is your new Google with a search feature to search all content that I have that is free or available by purchase. And let me tell you, there are a lot of free goodies there, like free printable PDFs for how to handle a choking incident to milestones to monitor in your kid. My website provides information regarding the health and development of your child, including parenting and sleep. My goal is that you stop those middle-of-the-night searches that lead you nowhere but into the land of anxiety. My goal is to guide you to be the confident and calm parent I know that you are. Make sure to visit pedsdoctalk.com and use the magnifying glass to search. Want even more? Make sure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting pedsdoctalk.com slash newsletter, where you can get the latest and greatest in child health news and parenting tips delivered directly to your inbox. That's pedsdoctalk.com slash newsletter.